It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter at Matthew Socey. Yeah, I'm, I switched things up and uh, you're, you're, you heard Bruce Springsteen, Streets of Philadelphia, from the film Philadelphia, directed by Jonathan Demme. Uh, we're going to flip formats today, and uh, I'm going to start talking about the work of Jonathan Demme in a little bit. But first, we have company, and of course, it's a guest who really needs no introduction. He's got his intro music <laughs> for him. Here it is. One, but I got a long one. It's called Inception. Yes, Brian Hartz is in the house. <laughs> I finally counted. There's up to 18. Warm. <laughs> and 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 uh, and Hans Zimmer still feels that's not enough. Oh, most certainly not. Most definitely. Most and certainly you know not. what? I need to I need to tag on in the end. Of course, the mashup I did of that song and your beautiful daughter. Yes. <laughs> so we'll get to that. Uh, of course, Brian is one of the gents involved with uh, Indie Lightsaber Academy. Yes. And uh, it, it it means it, this is the time of year where uh, you can actually do this outside. So uh, yeah, in, in fact, uh, Indie Lightsaber Academy is gearing up for our big tournament at the Cityway YMCA on May sixth. So if you want to get in on some sweet lightsaber combat action, yes, you can actually fight with a lightsaber. Uh, you can go to Facebook, find Indie Lightsaber Academy, uh, look us up. Registration for our tournament ends on May fourth. For our tournament on May sixth. So please do that. You're ha you're gonna have a great time. I guarantee it. See this? I, I forgot you had that coming up. So on top of the the reason why I wanted you in here. So that's good. That's right. That's now, right. Now we uh, reason to plug. We I, I always I often have Brian on when we, to discuss film scores and and we'll get to that in a little bit. But obviously I uh, I wanted to start things off with with Jonathan Demi, who uh, passed away earlier this week, and uh, if I remember right, seventy three. I think uh, yeah, seventy three. And uh, and looking back at his career, because we do that here at Film Sociology, we just go back to the IMDb page, and uh, pro one of the most eclectic 
resumes, I think, in, in the last, you know, in the, the second half of the 20th century when it comes to directors. Sure, like maybe Sidney Pollack compares. Probably, like yeah. I mean, as far as low-budget stuff and documentaries and feature films and, and you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, director-for-hire stuff with, with Mr. Demi. So uh, there's something to be said about that. And, and uh, of course, he's best known for winning Best Director for Silence of the Lambs. So I guess, you know, if, I, I tend to mix sports with my arts. You know, so I think, I think that alone gets him in the Hall of Fame. And, I would uh, say that, that that would probably qualify. Yeah, and I, and I think... Uh, but looking at this list, and uh, again, it's, I mean, I don't think he comes to mind immediately like a Scorsese or a Coppola. You know, they're similar in age, similar similar age groups, and similar training. And uh, we're going to start with that. I, his very first film, he was trained, he was one of those that was trained under the tutelage of the great Roger Corman. And this is people oh, that has given many. us everybody from, you know, Jonathan Kaplan to Martin Scorsese to uh, Ron Peter Howard. Ron Howard, Peter Bogdanovich. I mean, Ed, you know, a slew of great big name directors have worked under uh under the care of Roger Corman and and Demi was one of those. In fact, his his first feature film as a director and and Brian immediately thought of me <laughs> because of 1974's Caged Heat. Yes, film sociology, your home for women in prison movie information. Hi, Monica. Um, so that that's 1974. He followed it up with the Cloris Leachman-led action film Crazy Mama. Um, yeah, <laughs> she was. I'd love to see how that compares with like Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Um, cheaper and funnier. Okay, so let's well, put it that way. That. Um, worked with uh, another Corman S production. I think it was yeah with uh, Peter Fonda in Fighting Mad. And then um, his first kind of big film was a CB movie, CB Ensembles, kind of if you combine Smokey and the Bandit with an Altman film, that was Handle with Care, also known as Citizen's Band. Also the first time he, I think he had the final cut pulled away from him. Um, an episode of Columbo, therefore he is always in the, always good in the books there. Um, that was the one Murder Under Glass with Louis Jordan as the uh, as the um, restaurant critic. Um, the the espionage thriller Last Embrace with Roy Scheider and Janet Margolin. Um, and then what really kind of got him on the map besides those in 1980, he did a film that won two Academy Awards for its screenplay and for best supporting actress for Mary Steenburgen, the eccentric film Melvin and Howard. With uh, Paul Lamatt as uh, Paul Dun as Melvin Dunbar, the man who claimed to have uh, been the last person to see Howard Hughes, and that was played by Jason Robards. Mm. And what happened with the with Hughes dying and the inheritance and all that stuff. So um, that led to another film that he had final cut pulled away from him. And apparently, somewhere out there, there is a three hour version of Swing Shift. I would actually like to see that. I remember seeing it in the theater with Goldie Hawn. And Kurt Russell, not them personally, they were in the screen. I was in the theater. <laughs> um, that same year, he made a film that, uh, a documentary that many, many people considered the best music documentary of all time, and that's The Talking Heads Stop Making Sense. Um, and that also did bring uh, The Talking Heads into a whole, between that and MTV, got them a huge, huge worldwide fame. Speaking of, he ended up directing some music videos in that time. Yes, he too. did. And we're, we're, we'll be getting to those as well. Uh, 1986's Something Wild, which is actually a Criterion title with uh, Jeff Daniels, Melanie Griffith. And that was a film that introduced the world to Ray Liotta. I think his performance in that led to his work in Goodfellas. Um, I think, yeah, one, one of a few one-man shows he directed with Spalding Gray, Swimming to Cambodia, Married to the Mob, any film that has Michelle Pfeiffer with big hair, that's always a plus in my book. Um, but yes, exactly, see, that's, that, well, that's part of the reason why we do the show. Um, then, yeah, 1991, Silence of the Lambs. How do you go from Married to the Mob to Silence of the well, Lambs? Well, he that's, did. He actually did. He did a thing called uh, Famous All Over Town, which is from 1988 that I, I you know, there's some titles I don't know. Um, yes, he did a few. Uh, we'll get the, Yeah, he did the uh, Artists Against, uh, Artists United Against Apartheid Sun City video in 1985. Um, the music video for I Got You Babe by UB40 and Chrissy Hine. That's <laughs> again, this is this is where that stuff comes in. Um Oh gosh, there was also in nineteen eighty three, I have a VHS copy of this, the American Playhouse. 
of um, the Kurt Vonnegut story, Who Am I This Time? Oh, wow. Which, with Susan Sarandon and Christopher Walken. So did he direct the... Because that was that was all filmed stage plays, right? Did well, this was not a, this. No, this was a a uh, this was a feature version of a stage okay, play. Right. But yeah, this was. But it was part of the American Playhouse series in the early '80s. And yeah, I, I have a VHS copy of that. Um, Silence of the Lambs, 1991. His follow-up, Philadelphia, 1993. And uh, you know, we heard the music earlier. Springsteen got an Oscar for best song, and in the video, um, it's Springsteen walking through song title. But what I always remembered was the vocal tracks were not the recording. He he did the vocals live as he was being filmed. I always remembered that because that's something slightly different. You know, it was it was not because I think we were at that point kind of making fun of people lip syncing in videos, and uh, Springsteen wanted to didn't want to do that for this song. Um, also, had the great Neil Young song used at the end of that film that still drives me to tears. Um, did videos for that for Springsteen for that for Murder Incorporated, uh, 1998's Beloved, the uh, the film based on the Toni Morrison novel with Oprah Winfrey oh, and wow. Danny Glover. Um, let's see if I should fall behind the video for that. In 2002, did the did the remake of Charade called The Truth About Charlie oh, with I Tandy Newton, Mark Wahlberg, and remade, Tim Robbins. Uh, That's right. Remake. See, okay. we're, we're getting to the, the, this is also shaking off your cinematic cobwebs here no, at I Film think Sociology. So, yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, the, Neither of those quite as uh, uh, captivating as the originals, no, but no, but the, I mean, and I thought if if you're if your most phone it in is the Manchurian Candidate and the Truth About Charlie, you're still doing pretty yeah, good. Um, the um, I, I always have trouble with the, the, agno- the Agronomist, the documentary from uh, 2003. Agronomist? Uh, yeah, thank you. Yes, about uh, about Jean Dominique, the Haitian radio journalist and human rights activist. Mm-hmm. Um, literally, pardon my French. Um, 2006, yeah, Manchurian Candidate. That's the one where Meryl Streep is not Angela Lans. She's more Madeleine Albright than Angela <laughs> Lansbury, I guess, with Denzel Washington and Liev Schreiber. Not as, uh, how should I put it? Not as Tennessee Williams-esque as the the original, but that's, that's a tough act to follow. It is. So that's all right. Um, 2006. A, f- a concert film that made my top ten, and that was Neil Young, Heart of Gold. Neil Young performing at the Ryman, and it was very bare bones, and it's just Neil Young on stage. No backstage nonsense, no audience reaction shots, just him in as pure as, as, pure as Neil Young can be, uh, purest form on stage performing, and it just it, it moved me a big in a big way. And then in 2008... Made what might be my favorite Jonathan Demi film, and this man has an Oscar, and he did Philadelphia, and that's the wedding drama Rachel Getting Married with uh, Anne Hathaway getting her first nomination. It, it might be my favorite wedding film. I have not done my inventory of wedding films, but it's uh, it's handheld. It's uh, uh, one of Sidney Lumet's kids did the screenplay. And it's funny, if you watch this and then go back and revisit Ricky and the Flash, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, but Anne Hathaway's sister is getting married. It's the wedding weekend. Uh, Hathaway's character just gets out of rehab, and there's Anna. We've seen the characters in the situations within film weddings and real weddings, really. Um, we've seen these stock characters. They're not in this film. I mean, it's very handheld, you-are-there documentary, verite look. And Jonathan Demi being Jonathan Demi uh, fills it wall to wall with music. There is um, the father of the bride is in the music industry. So a lot of eclectic musicians are performing, practicing. And then the ceremony itself, which takes up the last uh, last quarter of the film, is really wonderful to watch. And also a great cinematic gene pool. You have uh, Bill Irwin as the father and Deborah Winger as the mother. That's fascinating. That is fascinating, and they're I they're that separated. One. I'll have to that put that one on my list. Definitely have to check that out. Um, Neil Young's Trunk Show. Um, he did worked with Tavis Smiley. He did a Master Builder. Um, another telepathic thing. Ricky and the Flash, which which I got to bring up for a few reasons. Uh, uh, full disclosure. WFYI had a hand, had a small bit in Ricky and the Flash. This was the one. This was the reuniting of Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein. 
Not not selfish choice, by the way. But, but uh, Meryl Streep plays an aging rocker who attends uh, who is her estranged daughter's wedding, and uh, her actual daughter is in the film. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah, I've and seen uh, something about this. And this is and there's the, there are some parallels to uh, Rachel getting married. We have a divorced couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, the man is married to an African American woman. In this case, it's Audra McDonald. Fascinating. You could do a lot worse. <laughs> there is a little bit of the kind of you are there look. Um, Rick Springfield actually has a nice supporting role as uh, Meryl Streep's boyfriend, rocker boyfriend. Um, it, I remember Ed Johnson not taking this film to task because the idea of a musician selling his gear to do a gig for a wedding seems spontaneous and very hokey. This was also supposed to be set in Indiana, hmm. not shot in Indiana. As most of them most are. of them are. If there's one scene with Klein and Streep in a coffee shop with a cobblestone road, could be Zionsville. I don't think it was they were they were quite yeah. going for that. But there was a scene, of course, with IU alum Kevin Klein in an IU shirt, yeah. and WFYI is being played on a radio. So huh. that's 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 our our contribution. So apparently, is it you? And it's not so me. It's not you. No, oh, you, you, if it were me, you know I'd be still <laughs> screaming about it to this would. day. Of course you would. I brag about my guest on the show from Food Network and Cooking Channel. You know that. That's true. So anyway, but but it, it's Another okay. Another Kevin Klein film set in Indiana, not in Indiana, because he also did In and Out, which was set in Indiana. That's not in Indiana. right. So <laughs> hi, Indiana Film Commission. I know. Keep at it. Just keep fighting the good fight. And and the last uh, concert documentary he did uh, from last year was one with uh, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. So. Um, you know, it's it's quite often when when an artist pass. I know I'm one of those. I tend to go back and go and revisit some of their work, and I I think I know in Brian's case that they're gonna he's gonna be discovering some of their work fairly soon, at least with a few of these titles. I think so. So so you're welcome. That's yeah. that's what we do here. The the Matt Flix account here, but but the fact is he he worked on stuff that he was really really interested in as opposed to just cashing a check. Absolutely, and there's something to be said about that. So so thank you, Jonathan Demi. I just for remember your that, fine actually, work. The, uh, he he apprenticed with Roger Corman. Roger Corman is actually in Silence of the Lambs. I yes, he is, that. and he's got a bit in. Uh, he has a bit in Rachel Getting Married. Nice. He also sort of, to a certain degree, had kind of his core players, because, you know, Dick Miller, I think, believes this one. The great that guy, Charles Napier, okay. has a number of uh, appearances in Demi's films. So, you know, it's not bad to have a group of, I think we all know about having a group of regular players or usual suspects. So Absolutely. that's pretty good. Okay. Um, shifting gears a little bit. And, and, yeah, I'll get to new movies later, because... Well, this is more fun and more more important. So, so Brian for a while back had a had a blog about film scores, and That's true. and and he is one of the uh, he's one of the resident film score uh, correspondents here at Film. So, makes it sound like a big operation. Yeah, but um, I'm part of the you know large staff. I just came up from the press room. <laughs> I have ink all over my fingers. I've been hammering away at a manual right. typewriter for hours with a visor. <laughs> <laughs> And he's got a br- bottle of single malt something in the thing that come- only after five o'clock. That's when that's when it comes yes, out. So yes. it comes out of the drawer then. Anyway. Right, exactly. Giant drawer. Nice. So um, anyway, there were two film scores that I have I had recently purchased because they're <clears> not <throat> released. Because and, and it was resorted to this. I couldn't find it in stores. I had to, and I had to finally go to Amazon and get them. They're also both imports. So and yeah, I'm still the guy that buys CDs in 2017. Don't judge me. But um, but it was a one-two I, punch. I'm another one of those guys. Uh, thank you, because <laughs> tangible in your hands, read the liner notes, even if they're j- in Japanese, crazy. And you know, no, they're, it's not going to get yanked away from you if if the uh, you know streaming company doesn't loses the rights. That's right. So take that technology. That's right. But um, yeah. yeah, see, you kids. <laughs> I'm going to go back down to my typewriter. <laughs> That's right. Um, yes, vinyl has become the 78s of technology. And eventually CDs will be that, but That's I understand true. that. So, um, Okay, but I, I've recently purchased the soundtracks to the first two Death Wish films. And uh, and these were ones that, I, again, I've, I've always been intrigued by. They've always been in my head. And um, anyway, here's but, – but this is for you trivia, trivia nerds out there. The first Death Wish film was the was the soundtrack done by Herbie Hancock of all people. Yeah. Um, here's here's a little sampling of this. There there are times that this film score the soundtrack sounds like a '70s soundtrack, mm-hmm. 
and that's not a that's not a slight. And there are other times it sounds like a '70s Herbie Hancock album, which is not a slight in the least. So anyway, here's a little bit of the main theme from "Death Wish" by Herbie Hancock. Yes, it was the 70s, so a Fender Rhodes is definitely in play. Oh, yeah. But uh, that that's Herbie Hancock and the uh, main title to Death Wish from 1974. Yeah, uh, it's, it's funny. You, you talked about how it, it sounds like a 70s film, and it's funny because, you know, we, we hear that and immediately it's like, well, yes, this sounds like every you know cop film and TV show from the 70s, but you forget that that's partially because he helped set the template for that. Correct, yes. Uh, uh, his, you know, along his, with like Lalo Schifrin and the exploitation work of like Isaac Hayes and Curtis Mayfield, you yep. know, it all kind of blended together into that sound. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this was even before he was a solo artist, with his work with Miles Davis, and Miles, of course, was, was Miles was trying to be a rock star at this point. And it yeah. wasn't just the generic waka-ja-waka guitar. We, we know that. Yeah. But, uh, but Hancock was doing a lot of synth work, a lot of Moog work, and, well, and that, that shows up in that. In the this. reason that he ended up being high for Death Wish was that um, you know Dino De Laurentiis uh, being famously cheap just said go <laughs> go find a cheap English band because he figured that you know English rock bands being popular at the time he could just find something but uh, somebody brought him uh, and maybe it wasn't Dino himself but somebody brought one of the producers a copy of Headhunters. Uh, ah. Which was, you know, Herbie's album from 1973, and they said, "Okay, this is the guy we got to get to do the movie." And which is funny because in the final score, there's that bit, and there's some bits at the end, but like a whole lot of it doesn't sound anything like that. And I, uh, for- I forgot this was his his uh, his second score. Do you remember mm-hmm. what his first soundtrack I don't was? Remember. It was a few years before. In 1966, he did the music for Blow Up. Oh, that's right. Wow. So. Okay, there, there's there's a there's a pretty impressive filmography that's, that's already. That's not bad, and yeah. and this was at that time, yeah. jazz scores were starting to become a little more in the norm. Quincy Jones did the soundtrack mm-hmm. for The Pawnbroker in 1960. I think it was the same year, 66. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, and then of course, you know, with the you know the first few years of the 70s, the black exploitation films coming to the fore. You yeah, had, so you, know, you didn't have to have straight up funk, right? You did not have to have Maurice Jarre, you know, huge swelling no. string thing, and. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, um, but yeah, I, I love me some Lawrence of Arabia, big time. So, so yeah, those started to come in, and I, I so I was jotting down notes, and I, I've talked with Chris Lloyd from the Film App about this, and and we, there, most film scholars or film fans will say, if you don't notice the soundtrack, then the soundtrack is doing its job. Hmm. I think there are exceptions to that rule, and I, I scream about those constantly here. Oh, yeah. Inception, Ennio Morricone, mm-hmm. um, yeah, all, all the black exploitation film yeah. scores that we, we discuss. And what I remember about the film Death Wish, I only remember a couple parts. Like the, the opening, what we just heard, is used in the opening credits. Mm-hmm. And that's all I really kind of remembered. I think I, I thought there were probably yeah. some orchestrated parts, and there are. There are. Um, Hope Lang, who plays uh, Charles Bronson's wife in this, has her own theme. That's mm-hmm. that's a um, by comparison a standard really orchestrated, yeah. Um, um, and in her funeral has that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Hancock did a couple. You know, there's he has this, a, a track called "Sweet Revenge," S U I T E, which and is that's about all over the place. Yeah, and it's nine and a half minutes long. So it was, it was interesting to listen to it in the car because that's where you really should listen to your music. Um, well, it's one of those. Mm, most but people have better sound systems in their cars than they've got anywhere else. Probably. I you know I wish I could there there could be a day where I could just plop down in the living room with headphones because it's seventy four. The hi fi. You're right, exactly. And uh, but yeah, th- that that's a piece of music that is kind of all over there. So well, don't expect a nine and a half minute 
action sequence, I guess, with that music. Well, Hancock also had classical training. Of and course, you can hear it come yeah. out in a lot of the parts of that score because some of that, you know, it's it's, it's the you know the where he's just in the uh, the uh, urban jungle carrying out his uh, bloody revenge upon uh, the lowlifes of seventies New York, and uh, there were a lot of them in New York at that time. A, well, according to the film, anyway. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there are parts of that that owe, you know, honestly, as much to, like, Bela Bartok as they do to, uh, you know, Isaac Hayes or Lalo Schifrin. That's right. Bela Bartok, in one show, in not even half hour, Bela Bartok and women in prison movies. This is your pledge dollars at go. work here. Yeah. And by the way, thank you for your pledge dollars during the drive. Uh, continue. Sustaining member. <laughs> thank you very much. You too although, can come Although up. I just saw some sweet mugs in the lobby, and I thought I might have to bump up my uh, my monthly pledge amount so I can get one of them sweet mugs. We'll have to see that. <laughs> By the way, I want, I want to pause for a second. Um, yesterday, uh, this all depends on when you're listening to this, on the last day of the pledge drive, and Brian heard this, uh, I, you know, we, I've been working, we, we, you know, the pledge drive is eight days, or a week, basically. And when it gets to be the last day of the drive, um, especially if you've been on the board as much as I have, th- things things kind of happen. And uh, David Forsell, a little punchy, a little bit, and and so little things. It's the little things that kind of get me through, uh, what have you. And we had, of course, the gang from uh, Keep Indianapolis Beautiful on, and I didn't intend it to go on the air. This was not a gaff. I I, <laughs> I had shared this for his amusement. But I played, and then and then I got talked into it by the staff to play it at the near the end of my shift. But for your pledge dollars, ladies and gentlemen, I played on the air the song "I Talk to the Trees" <laughs> by Clint Eastwood from the 1969 musical version, film musical version of "Paint Your Wagon," a film musical that has Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin singing. This is what it has come down that, to. That's a deep cut, ladies that and gentlemen. That is a deep, deep cut, yes. Oh, I have to admit, my dad is a fan of that movie. It's a weird movie. <laughs> and it's a weird it's, movie. Because it's, it's not just Cowboys and Gold Rush. It's also wife-sharing, and it's also direct, it, uh, adapted by um, er, the great Ernest Lehman did the, huh. did the score book for that. and. <laughs> Just a w- and this was this was a period, and we're going to get into this a little bit with uh, the DVD release of the week. Um, but there was that that was that weird period in the late sixties and early seventies. The studios, instead of hiring like really good singers who may be unknown, see seventeen seventy six, they hired movie stars. Also, an excellent film. Who whose tune carrying abilities varied. And we're kind of going through that now yeah, in the are. phase of I like to call it celebrity okey. Uh huh. Um, but we'll 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 get to that in a little bit. So stay tuned, kids. Yeah, stay tuned. This is yeah cliffhanger. Your pledge dollars at work. <laughs> but so back to Death Wish. Um, so yeah, I I sat down and watched the first Death Wish film, and it's been a while since I've watched the Man. first. And it's Michael Winner, mm-hmm. not interesting director, not a pleasant guy to work with. And it's honestly. <laughs> For my money, not a pleasant film. It is not a pleasant uh, film, you know, and it it's was, the it's the best of the Death Wish films. I, I'm sure it is, and, and because it's not such a rather unpleasant film, I haven't actually visited any of the sequels. Uh, I mean, I know it got a mixed critical reception to begin with. It, it did, and I don't think it's aged well since then. Well, it, although the, it was the template for any number of you know, yeah, dude this, revenge films, and this came out three years after Dirty Harry. Yes. So, so you know. America in the 60s and early 70s, it was in a time of turmoil and debate. Hmm. But um, <laughs> yes. but we you know, we had a film that was a huge hit about a, about a police officer who becomes judge, jury, and executioner, and that yes. that was and that also divided film audiences. It um, did. As as did Patton the year before that, yes, which won Best Picture. You know, is he a patriot or is he a sadist? Which, this was know, the and you know, Philip Patton, Dirty Harry, this excellent w- film. This was the debate in my film genre class, my senior yeah. year of college. Well, so now three years later, after Dirty Harry, now we have a citizen taking an justice and becoming was, yeah, judge, jury a liberal a liberal architect played by Charles Bronson. Now, okay. Bronson had. Bronson had an interesting career before that. Once upon a time in the West, and he had done a lot of Italian films, and and, uh, and of course th- the Great Escape, and Great Escape, and The Magnificent Seven, and a very good episode of The Twilight Zone. I have to very say. good, nice one. But with, but this uh, was with uh, Elizabeth Montgomery. Yes, well. that's right. So so this was the film that kind of put him in a different different stratosphere. One, it was his, 
and uh, it was just interesting that I, you know, I, he would not be my first pick to play something like this. To even play a Nebuchadnezzar. You know, I, uh, I would, you know what? I, I would even say we, we were talking, joking earlier, Gregory Peck or somebody like that, somebody that you would least likely to be a New I York like, vigilante. I feel like maybe I, I, I was reading <laughs> something about like maybe they tried to get Gregory Peck for it or something. It wouldn't like, surprise me. Yeah. Let's never forget. I mean, um, what was it? Paul Newman and Frank Sinatra turned down Dirty Harry. Yes. Way back when. Paul Newman also turned down Superman. Really? Yeah. For Jarrett, Red, Red, Redford for, and, and Paul Newman were both considered for Superman. For so the, Superman, the, the, or for, not for Brando? No, 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 no. I mean for pl- Superman. For the, oh, that's crazy. The, the guy with that, the, you know, no, that's, that's casting directors. That's really okay. Um, so anyway, but uh, going back and watching this, and yeah, as I said, this this is the best of the lot. This is a film that I, I think, and you again, you, you say it's an unpleasant film. I am, I'm with you. I also think it's the, but it's also a film that it has been bogged down by its sequels because, yeah. and which you, I know you and, haven't and seen. The, I the, have the genre that it helped spawn. Exactly. Which, so you know, this, comes this all is the way to this day. So with the, the Taken series. So Brian Hart, you've seen the best of it. Okay, well, and, fair and enough. you still want to shower. So uh, yes, yes, I certainly. Um, do. But yeah, there, there's. I, I started making some notes on on some of the score itself and and scenes that happen. But yeah, there's again, there's a combination of the orchestrated stuff and you know, especially the 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 creepy ambient scenes like of of Charles Bronson walking the streets of New York by himself right. and you know we we know somebody's lurking because the music's kind of telling us that the, the sort of atonal and the synths which was actually fairly unusual for the time right so so anyway it's it's there and a, and, a, and a brief, very odd departure when when uh, Bronson goes out west and you know, yeah, meets and it, the guy who gives him his gun and 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 for for a moment the the, the score becomes like Aaron Copeland, Dmitry Tiomkin, yes, Western score exactly. So it's yeah, it was yeah, it's a bit jarring, but but very interesting. Yeah. So so anyway, that's that's the nineteen seventy four score for Death Wish from Herbie Hancock. Um, that being said, a man that I still hope to see live one day. Yeah, so of course this. Past week was the uh, I've yeah. I fill in the blank ten <laughs> of these on one is a lie I didn't do it but but you you had done one I of did. I've seen these I've seen nine people in concert there's the tenth one is a lie figure it out and your tenth the one that you have never seen in concert was Herbie Hancock that's right and so now comes the name dropping portion of the show um, I've seen Herbie twice um, I saw him in 1988 mm-hmm. on a co-headlining tour with Chick Corea. Nice. So this and this was when Chick was in his GRP. So a lot of both both playing guitars. If I remember, it was 1988. <laughs> um, but but Herbie Hancock has a huge influence on me as a person because, like a lot of people, I was introduced to Herbie Hancock via MTV because Rocket. of Rocket. Of course, he's just just an odd, weird instrumental electronic what is this kind of thing catapult hip hop to the mainstream yeah it did and uh scratching on videos uh the concept not the actual um and i went and i talked my dad into we went to uh, grapevine records in flint michigan i got future shock and then the you know that's an that's an electric electronic jazz album from the early 80s unlike anything i'd ever heard before in that's my life solid, man. very solid and and i'm i'm one of those once I hear something by a particular, I'm like, I want to see what else this person mm-hmm. has done. And so I bothered my dad. We went back to the record store, and my next two Hancock purchases were Headhunters, you know, which which really brought in fusion to a to a whole new level. And then he had an album called Quartet, a traditional acoustic album with, and you could you could almost put them one names on them: Winton, Ron, and Tony. Yeah, not bad. And and then I go to my uh my middle school shop class and Mr. Noon, obligatory school shop teacher, and I was, you know this guy Herbie Hancock and 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 then he goes, "Yeah. You know he played with Miles." <laughs> and my mind was blown because yes, you could be, this, you know, I'm a 14-year-old knucklehead that you could be a band leader in one recording or one album and a side guy. Yep. For somebody like Miles Davis, and you know, we were thinking about my music history at that time. That was not that was not conceived. So, 
And then, of course, a couple of years later, he would win an Academy Award for doing the score for the the wonderful film Round Midnight. Yes, with the great Dexter Gordon. Which um, I, the, I realized we were talking earlier. I thought didn't didn't he have a, a connection with with Clint Eastwood? No, because I had gotten Round Midnight oh, with Bird. mixed up with Bird. That's okay. So. That's all right. But yeah, you know, Eastwood also a jazz freak. Um, yes. So. Anyway, fast and so Hancock's always been a favorite. Fast forward to Indie Jazz Fest. Herbie Hancock, the last time he was here, played at Indie Jazz Fest, and I got to shake hands with him briefly backstage, and I got to tell him the the first three purchases I had, and to to be able to tell him, you changed my perspective on music. So that's that's my shameless name dropping story. He, he seems like he'd be a fairly gracious and cool fellow he was very cool about that he 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 was also on the go but he was very cool about that but i mean um in in my career i've I've been able to meet three people that have changed my perspective on things him horton foot and john sales so thanks guys nice trio um one final note on herbie hancock and film music I, i i dare you to listen to rocket and then Axel F, the theme from beverly hills cop one after another harold faltemeyer yeah and uh uh you know it's it's almost a uh, and I want a new drug Ghostbusters theme the, kind of thing going on there. And the early '80s was the last period when instrumental music got charted. Also, yeah, I think Jan Hammer was another part of that yes. with uh, with Miami Vice. Yes. So yeah, I I love instrumental pop rock music. I, and it's a lost did that, art. Oh yeah, song that was in Ferris Bueller. And every other secret <laughs> of my success. Yeah. yeah. If you need if you need to let somebody know something was from the '80s and or sexual, you played that. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, um, shifting gears a little bit. So we go from Death Wish in 1974, and in Bronson's career, um, by the end of the 70s, not doing as well, although he did some interesting stuff before that. Films like The White Buffalo and Breakheart Pass and Borderline and Death Hunt, which was him and Lee Marvin. And, you know, things were just not quite happening. So in 1982, he went back to the well as Paul Kersey for Death Wish 2, also directed by Michael Winner. He did the first three, and then Jay Lee Thompson, I think, did the rest. But the 1982 soundtrack was done by Jimmy Page. And that one I'm not familiar with. This so. is, um, and this was this was on the Swan Song label, so Zeppelin was already done. I think the uh, Page was just also just starting to do stuff with The Firm, and uh, this was also Page at his heavy guitar synth era. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, there's, there's always two pieces of music that I always remember from this. One is the song Who's to Blame? And then this piece. And I'm, here's a little bit of Jimmy Page. Uh, this is a song called a, Sh- a Shadow in the City from Death Wish 2. From the soundtrack Death Wish of Death Wish 2, that's A Shadow in a City, the soundtrack done by Jimmy Page. And I always remembered the plucking. Yeah, it's um, it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, well, you know, it's almost if you did kind of an 80s urban synth version of a Morricone Western score. It's got kinda. that kind of haunting, and just a little hint of snarly guitar there. A little bit. And I think, I think the producers also used some of this music in Death Wish 3, um, but we'll we'll get to that. So, if you thought Death Wish was unpleasant, <laughs> Death Wish two. So at the end of Death Wish, by the way, spoiler alert on a thirty four year old film, thirty three year old film, forty year old. Uh, anyway, forty year old. But um, you know, at the end of the first Death Wish, 
Kersey's character winds up getting out of New York by sundown. Thanks, yes. Vince. Thanks, Vincent Gardenia, and goes to Chicago. And he's in a train station, and a a, he, a woman gets her luggage knocked out of her hands by a bunch of thugs. And he's picking up. He's helping the lady pick up the stuff. And he looks at the looks at the hoods and does a finger gun mm-hmm. with a big grin on his face. And I'm like, oh boy. Now, don't know if that was. I think there was an argument over. How they wanted, you know, I couldn't remember if Bronson did or didn't want that to be the ending. But, yeah, it's just like, okay. And, of course, four sequels later, you're looking at it going, oh, boy, foreshadowing. <laughs> so so the sequel, he's now in Los Angeles. He has his daughter with him. Now, the daughter was, you know, one of those that was brutalized in the attack, and her character's institutionalized. The wife dies in mm-hmm. the first one. Yeah, well, it's not fun. Speaking no, of which, it's, it's, you'll never watch Jeff Goldblum the same way after seeing that. And by the way, yeah, the first Death Wish, technically, Jeff Goldblum's character survives. Hmm. He's still with us. And okay. we'll, we'll get, we're getting to that. So so we get to the second one, and, and of course, a new set of thugs, this time in Los Angeles, attacks uh, Bronson's home, rapes the daughter, <laughs> rapes the housekeeper. Again. Yeah, a second time. That's another part of these movies. And this whole genre that bothers me. And then the daughter winds up uh, jumping out of a window and killing herself. It just, yeah. So now, while the first Death Wish was, you know, anybody who crossed Bronson's path, this time he's focused. He's going. say, this time it's personal. Oh, gosh, yeah. And uh, this time he's going after the individuals. Um, including a, a not as young as he was in Apocalypse Now, Lawrence Fishburne hmm. is in this. Um, J.D. Cannon's in the film for you fans of uh, McLeod. <clears throat> Hi, Erica. Um, <laughs> Anthony Franciosa. So, so it's a little more focused, and he winds up living in the dingy part of L.A., going after these guys one by one. So, yeah. If you, again, you, if you thought you needed a, if you thought you needed a shower for the first Death Wish, you need a Karen Silkwood job in in the second one, and then the. Th- Third is just ridiculous because it's back in New York, even though it's shot in England and it looks that way and the gangs are silly and it, it, it's it's just a cartoon. So, well, yeah, that was the 80s when, uh, you know, Bronson, you know, got right up there next to characters like Stallone and Schwarzenegger. Exactly. Action movie cartoon. He was also by the by the time the third one third one was done by Canon. So there yeah. was that era of apparently there were two piles of screenplays, one for Bronson and one for Norris. And they kinda, you know, interacted. They, just, they, they, they fought for them. Right. One <laughs> one in the same level. So anyway, and I've and, and by the way, the, the vocalist that was on this was Chris Farlow, who I I know did stuff with Jimmy Page's solo album Our Outrider, which came out in nineteen eighty eight. That was also an album I played to death when I was in college. I was a freshman in college at that time. And so, yeah, the the, the, the post-Zeppelin stuff of Jimmy Page fascinates me. I mean, he could have easily gone, uh, and, and you know, the Outrider album, he didn't tour a whole lot with it. And he's kind of an eccentric recluse. You know, seeing him sh- show up in the documentary It Might Get Loud was fascinating to see. Um, it just felt like they kind of took a dartboard. Let's interview these three guitars. Okay, Jack White, The Edge, and Jimmy Page. Fun, fun documentary there. Okay. But anyway, you could do worse. You could do worse. So anyway, that's there's there's music from the first two Death Wish films. Yeah, I think the music is definitely better than the films themselves. Sometimes that just that happens. just happens, and you we know? could we could do a whole show based on that. But oh uh, we boy, won't. could we? Yeah, we could so do a series based on that. <laughs> All right. In fact, let's spin off a podcast from this. There we go. Music it's that's better, better than the movie. movies. Oh boy. So shifting gears a little bit. Um, again, you're listening to Film Sociology. I'm Matthew Sosi here with Brian Hartz. Yo. And uh, maybe we'll talk about what's doing in theaters by the end. But but speak, we we go back around to musicals. We brought up paint. We brought up the era. We are now in an era where um, actor name actors um, have the ability to sing. Some are more successful than others. But the big title on DVD this week and Blu-ray was my number one film of of last year uh-huh. and uh you know apparently one best picture for about 20 seconds <laughs> um but yes la la land is finally out on dvd and blu-ray i'm already getting nagging uh, notes from my daughter to go buy it oh, okay. um, that sort of thing now now of course this is one of those films ladies and gentlemen that um it has a polarizing audience uh, some people have absolutely gushed over it pointing itself and then there are others that wondered because it was hyped so much 
And, you know, even even at the by the time the Oscars were happening, there was even a little bit of a backlash of a titanic English patient nature over the film itself. But but ladies and gentlemen, we have an exclusive because you, Brian Hartz, had not seen the film until this week. I, I hadn't, actually. And it's it's interesting because, you know, that the, the cycle of reception and backlash happens so much faster now in the Internet. Era, yes, it does. Uh, that uh, it's I feel like I feel like La La Land's been been through like two different cycles of. <laughs> Uh, you know, acceptance and backlash already by the time I... So there was no way I could come clean to this movie. Right. Um, so, and then, of course, the uh, the Oscars debacle. I almost made a joke about how I meant to go red box uh, Moonlight. But, you you, you know, actually did so, that with me online. Yeah, I okay, appreciate that. Enough. All right, yeah. <laughs> We're, we're, we're Faye, joke, but I gotta go. We're Faye and Warren behind you as it was happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's who those old people were. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, Brian, but, your, uh, your your thoughts on La La Land? I, I, you know, I I found it charming, but uh, tonally inconsistent. Okay. Uh, it, it 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 felt like it didn't really know whether it wanted to be a you know 30s 40s MGM musical or 500 Days of Summer. You know. <laughs> Okay. It, uh, All right. You know, kind of, kind of walk that line between. Oh, this is a quirky indie uh, romance about uh, about these down on their luck twenty somethings, or you know, it's a Starin or you know, uh, Gene Kelly or that that sort of thing. And then you know, I think the whole thing probably would have been rendered a whole lot more enjoyable if Emma Stone or Ryan Gosling could sing at all. <laughs> Because they can't. I'm sorry. They're they're charming and wonderful actors. Their performances when they're not singing are spot on. Mm-hmm. But I found myself wondering, couldn't they have just done like they did with Audrey Hepburn and my oh, fair lady? Oh, get a Marty you know? Nixon yeah, in 2017. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, yes, not, maybe not something that's that's so deliberately <laughs> artificial. Uh, but you know, since the movie embraces the artifice of uh, you know singing and dancing in the in in L.A. anyway, why not? go for something just a little more polished. Okay, all right. So I'm so my counter to that is now there now I'm now I'm pulling out the old history titles. Um there have been a, a couple of musicals prior to this that there are various degrees of vocal ability. Oh yeah. One and and I think it, it I think what Damien Chazelle wanted to do was to do something like that. One is Woody Allen's Everybody Says I Love You. Okay. And by the way, you want to talk about a range of vocals. Everybody from Woody Allen to uh, Tim Roth to Julia Roberts to Goldie Hawn to, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's all uh, Edward Norton. Um, there is that. And then there's Kenneth Branagh's version of Love's Labor's Lost, yeah. with, okay. which is a Cole Porter musical done in the 40s, where you had everybody from Alicia Silverstone to Sir Ken to, and you, it also had Nathan Lane, uh, and Timothy Spall, all in this. Um, yeah, sure. And I, I think that the fact that the vocals are not great because they are not polished is, a, I think, a humanized version of bringing it closer to us. Because one of the, the main complaint for people who don't like musicals is you and I are talking right now, and then, you know, we turn we turn to the camera true. and burst on the song. I'm not saying and they, they sound to perfect. Be, you know, Audrey McDonald to right. pull a name out of the hat, yeah. or uh, you know, somebody with a, a very Broadway sounding voice. I am certainly not that musical theater snob. I'm, okay, uh, you know, uh, but at the same time, I thought. Eh, they, <laughs> I need, I, I, I need to make that as a sound clip for reaction. All right. Yeah, yeah. please go for it. I, I, <laughs> okay. Because it's like, you know, it's like I want to come along on this journey with you, but it's you're just not getting there. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I, and there have been instances where I've been totally fine with that. I really enjoy the Tim Burton Sweeney Todd in which you as know, did I. Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter. Not people you'd see on on stage singing, and I, I think uh, we're like I said, we're, I, I mentioned Celebrity Oki. Um, you know, two two great examples of that recently, <clears throat> Mamma Mia. Yes, and Rock of Ages. Yes, um, and and those are and both of them did do what I asked them to do of a musical like that. Embrace your silliness. Yes, I think I think it you takes. Can't Mom- do anything but with Rock of Ages. Yeah, and and in Mamma Mia, it wasn't until Dancy Queen before they finally embraced their silliness. And I think I think what La La Land with with the opening shot right out of the gate, I think they embraced their silliness dead on. Sure, and and didn't let up. Okay, I want to bring another title to you as far as tonal. You you compared okay. it to um, Gene Kelly in 500 Days of Summer. The other one I think he has been inspired by, and I think wedges, I think he morphs those two stories well. What was an attempt to do that 40 years ago 
was Martin Scorsese's New York, New York, oh, where okay. you wanted to have an MGM musical mm-hmm. and a Cassavetes drama. Yeah, that's true. Shoved in at the same time that's because true. those are if if you thought Ryan Gosling was at times a, a bit of a d bag as the uh, as the jazz snob, De, really De Niro is twice as abrasive and and, and you know, probably slightly menacing too because De Niro. Yes, and this is seventies De Niro with Liza Minnelli, and that's that's I think it's a much darker musical because of that relationship. Fair enough. So anyway, that's... I will say, you know, without spoiling anything for La La Land, sure. though, while while I had my difficulties with it throughout, the 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 closing number, if you will, yes. really pulls it all together, won me over, made me feel like, okay, that was worth spending two hours with these people. All right, good. Um I will say, um the, and I I have brought this up on the show before. The film has two endings. And and watching the first ending the way they do it, it was almost a cinematic middle finger of, okay, we know you want this. We know it's going down this way, but here's oh, the ending we know you want. Oh, right. And and as I, I remember watching it the first time, and I'm with it, I'm with it, I'm, with, I'm like, you're really going to run all the way. But about halfway through, I said, if you pull the rug, I'm going to be okay with it because you went this far okay. all right. with the first yeah, I and wish then, I could talk about it without spoiling. I, I know, it, but I, I don't know, want to spoil I know, it I don't. People, I try not to. So, yeah. so when when A turns into B, I was really all right with it because I was expecting B from the get go. Okay, yeah, and then yeah we, as we all were. And then we, it's kind of like picking up a fumble at the ten yard line and running ninety yards, or in this case, eighty five yards. I mean, Actually, that's a very good analogy because yeah, by that time I I I was afraid that the film had fumbled. Or even better, if it even better, it's a lineman. It's a guy who has no business touching the football and he's huffing and like, puffing. Uh, like when refrigerator refrigerator painter ran. Right imagine imagine that. yeah, imagine fridge going ninety five <laughs> yards with a ball while singing. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, so I, I it sounds like a mixed bag for you. But it's it a B plus. Okay, all right. Well, that's fine. That's it was. It's that's interesting. It helps that you know, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are preternaturally beautiful. So even when they're you know not being so charming on on screen, they're it's just nice to look at them. Yes, and they and this is their third time working together, and there's obviously a chemistry yeah. with them that oh, yeah. works really really well. And it doesn't hurt that that John Legend, who can sing. Is uh, you know helps bridge the uh, the middle portion of the film. Yes, and uh, yeah. and and yes. Uh, there was, uh, the other thing we were watching is that yes, there there are African Americans in this film. Uh, it's not just white guy saving jazz, which is a re- which is an easy brush to do. We know this. Oh so. yes. And if you do that, I'll hit you with my Dave Brubeck album. So there. there All right. Well, fair enough. Okay. So anyway, that is happening on DVD this week. The only other title I saw, because nobody wanted to go up against this at the video stores, but but I saw a dark comedy called Catfight. With Sandra O oh and Anne Heche and Alicia Silverstone, and no, I didn't. No, Monica, I didn't rent it. I didn't rent it for the obvious reasons. Ah, well, but I, but it know, does. I, I thought, wow, you know, so some uh, like three actresses who, uh, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I forgot about them. Yes, <laughs> kind, this is that kind of that. But this is, I believe, they had a pro- they produced this in well. But it's it, it's a basically it's not one fight. There are three fights between the Sandra O oh character and the Anne Heche character. They knew each other from college. <laughs> And let's just say every time they fight, their their life slash financial situations differ. And I would say the the big moments with the fight scenes are done with classical music, which you know if you we're talking, we're talking literal fights here. Yes, literal fist okay. fights, okay. Uh, literal fist fights with classical music. You know, so if you've never seen a Clockwork Orange, you know, <laughs> violence and classical music. I mean, it's kind of an easy punchline nowadays, Fair but enough. but they. Uh, they do kind of go all out, or raging bull for that matter. Kind of raging bull, but uh, not nearly as good. Um, the the film is eh, it's kind of a one joke note, especially when you see that the you know there's a big fight in the, within the first five minutes of the film, and and you know the the, the characters change and the, not and not for the better, not necessarily for better. One person becomes better than the other because of uh, circumstances. So just kind of a one note one note joke, unfortunately. So okay. that is that is out there uh, in theaters or actually on video. Um, the other title, the old title of the week for me, is it's out on Criterion, and it's the second of the Francis Ford Coppola film shot in Tulsa, Oklahoma, based on the novels of S.E. Hinton. Rumblefish is now okay. out on Blu-ray, the the counterpart to his very operatic The Outsiders, which. Uh... 
The book just had its 50th anniversary. Yes, S.E., yeah. based on the novel by S.E. Hinton, and had a slew of now, you know, career folk. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's quite the who's who of people who weren't who yet. Yeah, I think when Leif Garrett was your biggest name at that time, yeah. and Matt Dillon. Uh, but this is, uh, this Rumblefish is, it's it's the artier of the two. It's shot in black and white. It's Matt Dillon living in the shadow of his famous hoodlum older brother, played by a very Brando-esque Mickey Rourke. Um, Diane Lane is also in the film. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Diana Skirwood, Dennis Hopper, um, Tom Waits. And it's a very, uh, while I would say, uh, I, I said that The Outsider is very operatic and kind of bigger in scope. Especially this, with the director's cut. Yes, this is more introverted, um, almost kind of an era of mumblecore. There's a young, Vincent Spano is in this, uh, of course, uh, Nicholas Cage, no longer Nicholas Coppola, is, has mm-hmm. a supporting role in this, <laughs> and it's just a just an odd, weird kind of rambling Thanks, film. Francis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, well, that's okay, um, but it's one that I really like, and it's hard. I mean, it, 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 these are the films; these two films by Coppola, based on S.E. Hinton novels, resonated more with me than the eventual suburban fantasies of the film of John Hughes in the 1980s. I'm just that way. I'm sorry. So anyway, that is out on Blu-ray. I can't wait to get mine in the mail. Um, New in in theaters at IU Cinema. Uh, This also depends, of course, on when you're listening to this. Um, If you're listening on Saturday, you still have time to run down maybe to Bloomington. And at 3 o'clock, the 1971 fantasy musical Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Speaking of musicals. There you go. From uh, Gene Wilder. Much better singer. Much better singer. Fun. Well, he's odd, but anyway. Um, 7 o'clock as part of the International Art House series, The Lure. Uh, at 3 o'clock on Sunday, April 30th, The Half from 2016. And at 6.30 p.m. Sunday, April 30th as a part of Scorsese's Men of Faith series, The Last Temptation of Christ. Right. A must-see on the big screen. I will defend that film. Oh, like most biblical films, it is too long, but... Uh, you really shouldn't protest it if you haven't Speaking seen it. Speaking of unorthodox scores by people from the pop Peter world. Peter Gabriel, great, Terrific great score. score. So that, and I think two years before that, uh, Ennio Morricone did the film music for The Mission. And oh, that was, those were films that charted, also very influential when you're a, a 16-year-old knucklehead rock guy. So. Although the, the theme from that eventually ended up being used by coffee commercials in the late 80s. Remember that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, let's oh, see. Well. Monday, May Nothing 1st. Is incorruptible. Yeah, Monday, May 1st is La Dance from 2009. Student Film Showcase springs 2017 on thir- Tuesday the 2nd and Monday the 3rd. The uh, the thriller drama from last year, The Salesman. Yes, Best Picture Foreign Film on Monday the 8th and May the 11th. All right. I'm I'm being short with the new film today because we only have a few minutes left. But uh, the film The Circle is open in theaters with Emma Watson, Tom Hanks, um, the last performance from Bill Paxton, Glenn Headley, Patton Oswalt. And this is based on a popular novel. The author also did ha- have a hand in the screenplay of a down-on-her-luck girl who gets into the job at a big conglomerate. It's not Google. No, and Tom Hanks is not. You get that, kids? It Tom is Hanks, not Google. Tom Hanks is not Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, but he has a nice beard and a nice pullover kind of sweater sweatshirt thing. And uh, Watson gets a part of this world where there's you know retreats and community, and it's all about opening up more information. And you get these little cameras that are the size of a marble, and they show up everywhere. And uh, John John Boyega is there, you know, not as the stormtrooper to let you know things are not apparently as they seem. Hmm. Um, this is a film, ladies and gentlemen. If you're, and this is the plight also with the Emma Watson character. If you've never read Faust or Orwell, hmm. or you've never seen the Truman Show, you might get something out of this. Hmm. But it's twenty seven. This is going now. But it's twenty seventeen, and you know, audience. The audience is live in the Truman Show. <laughs> yeah, and and the Emma Watson character doesn't is a little slow on the uptake a little bit. But hmm. uh, and I guess maybe that's intentional. But I think we've kind of seen these stories done before in a better way. Oh, okay. I was going to say. I mean, it, it, all can be forgiven if it's at least done well. But it's I'm guessing just maybe not. okay, and Who's you know. Um, I forget. I have. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. I'll have to check on that. Well, but okay. there, there's <laughs> also a moment. There, there's all. There was also a possibility of Hanks, 
who, you know, again, he is supposed to, and I know why he got cast in this role, because he is a likable kind of CEO-looking guy. Um, I will say, you know, does he turn into Al Pacino at the end of Devil's Advocate? No. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Sorry. And I was kind of hoping for that, but no, that does not happen, not Hanks in this case. doing Pacino would be pretty Well, but not, maybe not exactly Pacino, but if you've seen <laughs> Devil's Advocate, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, yeah, it's just kind of a meh film. Emma, and my daughter referred to it as... It's. It feels like it was written as a first draft by a high school student. It's. It sounds like it's uh, another one of those like uh, young adult dystopian kind of things, Kinda, although maybe a little or, more contemporary. I think if this was Social Network, it, the screen. I think the screenplay was written in all caps, <laughs> kind of thing. All right, on a on a phone. With, yeah. With, just thumbs. Um, we oh, by the way, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, the twenty eighth and 29th at uh, the twenty ninth, of course, at uh, the Art Craft Theater in Franklin. So get you down there. Go see that scout. <laughs> Thanks, Atticus. <laughs> uh, we we're short on time, Brian. Where can people go as far as the Academy? Uh, go on Facebook, look up Indie Lightsaber Academy, uh, or go on the website for the YMCA at City Way uh, in downtown Indianapolis. Lovely facility. Come get your lightsaber on May sixth. It's going to be a blast. My best year, smarter two-thirds. And I'm sure they will gladly accept it. Ladies and gentlemen, some words to live by. Silent Green is people! Zardoz has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan.